Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson. Today we welcome to the podcast Dr. Bakke Tezjan, who is an associate professor in the Department of History at the University of California, Davis. Uh, professor Tezjan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We're really happy to have you. Thank you. So the topic of our discussion today will be writing the history of the early modern Ottoman Empire. Uh, we'll be drawing from Dr. Tezjan's recent book entitled The Second Ottoman Empire, Political and Social Transformation in the Early Modern World, which was published by Cambridge University in 2010. So the book focuses around this kind of tumultuous period following the death of Ahmad I in 1617 um, through the, the regicide or the killing of his son Osman II in 1622. Um, maybe we could just start by kind of outlining the kind of exceptional events of this period and, and asking you to tell us what, what caused all of this tumult and turmoil. Well, even though I wrote a book about it, it's a tricky question to put in two sentences. Uh, the reason I focus on that period was that it demonstrated so many of the tensions of early modern times in a very condensed manner. As historians, we do not have a whole lot of chance working at labs, and uh, when we look at narratives of chrono- uh, sort of uh, chronicles, uh, we get to have a good picture. But a period like that one, when uh, there are some alternative narratives where a lot of things are at stake, produces uh, more written record, more angles to observe things from. And so I thought that kind of an intense period would give me a chance to look at uh, a number of long-term developments. And that's what I tried to do in the book, even though the narrative focus of the book is in those five years with some extensions going back and forth. Those extensions going back and forth are really uh, what make, are really the things that make the argument stronger because each important moment in that five-year period lends itself to be one of the significant moments in a longer story. So 1617, why does... Uh, Ahmed I get to be replaced by his brother. So that offers you an opportunity to look into that long uh, right. development of jurists, etc. So maybe we could just take that moment. I mean, so this is, um, you know, for for those of our listeners who aren't familiar so much with the history of the early modern Ottoman Empire, this is, you tell us in the book, the first time that um, a brother is the successor as opposed to a son, right? When uh, Mustafa I replaces Ahmad I on the throne. So so what's at stake in that moment? What what accounts for this kind of new pattern of succession? It was, in a certain sense, uh, kind of moving in a more orderly direction, the Ottoman succession. It was already there. But this role that was going to be played by a jurist was somewhat unanticipated. So uh, of course, you're right. I need to think about uh, the whole audience who might be listening to this, some of whom may not know as much about Ottoman succession. I tend to just get into it, right, uh, jump into it. Yes. So when we look into the long-term uh, sort of trends in Ottoman succession, we, what we have is more of a, you know open-ended game at the end of the life of a sultan. 
it's kind of, I guess you can call it survival of the fittest. Whoever will make it to the capital first uh, and take sort of get con- uh, take the control of the army gets to have the throne. So it's kind of a test. Of course, it's not a absolutely fair test because some of the princes are positioned closer to the capital so that when they receive the news of the uh, death of their fathers, they could get there earlier. So it's not a fair game. Uh, but it is a game in which if uh, you are a very enterprising prince, you could improve your chances by just sort of taking that initiative as Selim did. He was positioned in a terrible place far up north, but then he moved on it. Uh, and uh, this is, I'm talking about Selim the first. Uh, who uh, basically ended up uh, taking the position of his father while his father was still alive, right? So we have that kind of a deal in the earlier period. And this is uh, the period that I uh, call the feudal part until 1453. And from 1453 on, uh, the first uh, empire. In that period, everybody has a chance. Yet when we come to the middle of the 16th century, during the reign of Suleiman, tense succession issues are moved to the middle of the reign. Uh, and so Suleiman ends up killing his son. Then two of his sons ha- are having uh, a big fight while Suleiman is alive. Uh, one of them takes refuge in Safavid Persia. So all of this led, I guess, the Ottoman establishment to consider... You know, is that such a good idea if if, if uh, sending them out is going to cause so much trouble? So by the time of Suleiman, it is already assumed that sons will succeed fathers. Um, and this is why that there's a conflict between the two sons. That's right. right. Oh, yes. I, I, again, I, I, you're right. I should just uh, briefly explain. Every time a son comes to throne, kills all of his brothers. So the succession of a brother is not really ever a question. Possible, right. Uh, there are some brothers who survive in faraway places, in taking refuge in Europe or Byzantine Empire in early period, but they never make it. So you attribute uh, this kind of unusual situation then where, where the brother of Ahmed I, rather than the son, ends up becoming his successor in 1617 to the influence of the Grand Mufti, right? To this um, this this figure, uh, Saadadin Azed. So maybe you could just tell us, you know, what's what is the significance of Saadadin Azad's role, um, and and how does he actually get the power to become kind of a kingmaker in a sense? Yes, I, I suggest in the book that we observe the development of uh, jurists' law as a major political force in the 16th century, and with it, uh, the empowerment of the jurists uh, in the Ottoman polity, so especially the ones who occupy the very top positions of the judiciary, so that these are Sheikhul Islam, the Grand Mufti, the Mufti of Istanbul, and then the senior justice of the European provinces, Rumelika Daskere, and the senior justice of the Asian and African provinces, Anadolu Daskere. Uh, these uh, gentlemen are very, very powerful. They have position. Two of them have positions in the Imperial Council, and the Grand Mufti is consulted on 
various uh, issues with, with his legal opinion. Right. So this is one of the, the kind of things that um, for you distinguishes this period, right, from 1580 to 1836 that you call the, the Second Empire. Um, from what came before is this the rise in the power of the jurists. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about why, why it is that they become more powerful um, in Ottoman politics. While their po- rise to sort of political effect and influence is in the Second Empire, indeed, uh, the the, the development takes place earlier. The development obviously takes place earlier with uh, people like Abu Saud, uh, who basically create a kind of a deal with the monarchy in return for providing a great deal of legitimacy, they secure a certain degree of autonomy. Uh, of course, the degree of the autonomy is always negotiable, and it's a tension that goes back and forth. But when we look at uh, how they're able to sustain their position, especially the families, it's very clear that the top-ranking jurists have a lot of privileges. Now, we have to think for a moment. Uh, we have this tradition of if a vizier dies and he's re- his property is regarded more or less the emperor's property with the with the what i'm talking about is the uh, basically public sometimes auction even of uh, the goods that belong to a slave of the sultan when we look at the viziers of course not everything not all the properties are always taken over uh, some is being kept but in the case of the jurists We never see that because they are not slaves of the sultan. Mm, so they control they their are, own property. They are, yes, they are free subjects. They have their own property and they invest in this property, actually. They actually even invest in trade relations. There is evidence suggesting that. And as they go up, uh, their sons have a very good chance of getting into the hierarchy from a place uh, that would position them for future success, and that's why we have a number of families whose uh, sort of produce Shaykh al-Islams for multiple generations. So that development is not necessarily taking place in the Second Empire. That development is taking place in the 16th century gradually, but it produces something like uh, Assad, uh, someone like Assad in 1617. So Assad himself comes from a family just like this. Uh, his father had been a uh, tutor to Prince Murad, who became Murad III. Uh, and then he also got that title during the reign of Mehmet III. He w- became Sheikh al-Islam. So he was one of these uh, lords of the law who was able to put his sons into strong positions while he was himself alive. So, for instance, Assad's brother was a Shaykh islam and when he died, Assad became Shaykh islam He had this tradition of, in his family, judicial power. Right. So what you're describing is the rise of kind of alternative lineages of, you know, power and wealth, basically, that function alongside the sultan but aren't um, directly, you know, controlled by him. So this is part of how we should understand the rise of the jurists. That is right. Uh, that is right. And there were moments uh, at which the Assad was very adamant about even putting 
a limit to what the royal family could do. I think I, I provide a few examples of this in uh, uh, an article. Uh, that, that, that there's a moment where there's a case where she, he's acting against the wills of the queen mother. And then, of course, there's the famous moment where during the reign of Osman II, uh, Osman would like to get a legal opinion to legitimize uh, the his sort of the, the, the potential murder of his brother, and he doesn't give that legal opinion. So he is a man uh, who is just right for that moment. I guess right. not every man uh, would do necessarily the same thing. That So that is perhaps an important uh, side note there. Right. Yes, there are developments, structural developments that created this context in which somebody but he also could do seizes this, the day. but still yeah. uh, you need somebody who uh, can act responsibly and who's aware of his power to make that happen. So he was the one who in 1617 was consulted when Ahmed I died, so what should we do? And it looks like he is the one who pushed for the succession of Mustafa as the elder prince. Uh, who was the brother of Ahmed, son of Mehmet III, and who was left alive during the reign of Ahmed because uh, Ahmed came to throne before he was even circumcised. Uh, that, that, that sort of <laughs> was one of the funny moments in Ottoman history. His circumcision took place after he was enthroned. He was so young, his uh, his father Mehmet III died rather uh, prematurely. So there are a number of things that are related to contingencies, but then there is that longer development of the rise of the jurists, right. and then the two, the contingency of a young prince, and the uh, the longer development that creates position a, a situation where a power uh, for jurists could do something important get together in Assad's moment in 1617. Can I ask you then, in the book, you use uh, a term which, you know, um, I'm interested to hear if other readers have found this kind of interesting or controversial, but you use, you use the term proto-democratization, right? Yes. To characterize, um, you know, the second empire from 15, 1580 to the beginning of the 19th century, and particularly this moment between 1517 or 1617 and 1622. So I'm curious to know if part of what you mean by proto-democratization is the kind of entrance into the sort of halls and discussions of power of men like the jurists, the lords, the lords of the law. You, you can look at it that way, but that is not what I had actually meant. Uh, when I used that term, I, what I had in mind more had to do with the men who entered the administrative ruling class rather than the jurists. Because so here's the thing. Jurists have a long history in uh, the world of Islam, in uh, the region we came to call the Middle East and North Africa today, to have a lot of social prestige. Uh, the difference in 16th century is perhaps that they get much more directly involved in dynastic affairs. Mm, okay. And that, that, is, that is what perhaps distinguishes the Ottoman case because in the Memluk case, when we look, there are all kinds of um, succession issues that emerge, but we don't get to see legal opinions in favor of one or the other as much. Yet when we come to the Ottoman 16th century, we get to see the jurists involved. So what I have with the proto-democratization in mind are more people 
who make it into the rank of viziers, into the rank of governors during the Second Empire and where they come from, as opposed to the First Empire when they came from the ranks of the slaves of the Sultan. So this is a great segue, actually, because I wanted to ask you, I mean, one of the other things that you tell us distinguishes this period of the Second Empire, you know, starting after 1580, um, is this kind of the transformation or the, the emergence of what you call a market society, um, and that this is part of the transformations that brings a new kind of person into a kind of administrative you know, mediating class or, or even bourgeoisie. Right. So maybe you could describe yes. for us. I, I mean, I, I, what I suggest in the book is uh, the market society, uh, the development of a gradually, de- the gradual development of a market society, the gradual development of monetarization is really the key to understand also the increasing significance of jurist law uh, as it uh, so, sort of needs more of a unified legal structure that is well uh, experienced in commercial transactions and uh, the the market sort of uh, question the market issue is also very important to underline and understanding the s- sort of jurist law the the uh, and how it became not just politically significant but economically significant too i mean you have abasud for instance basically legitimizing uh, the use of interest uh, in the context of uh, cash waqf, right? So the, 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 the jurist law came from that context as well. That's why it is for me a little tricky to explain the uh, book's arguments. I, I think there are multiple layers that I try to uh, lay, that, lay out in the book, uh, starting from economic developments that produce uh, certain social changes, and then those social changes get to be reflected in the political structure. So maybe we could ask, I mean, you know, one of the things that struck me about the book is that, you know, the Ottoman Empire often gets written into economic, sort of global economic histories uh, as a kind of backwater, right? I mean, that, you know, up until the 19th century, it was sort of behind and it didn't develop the kinds of things, you know, this is sort of the way, you know, some sort of what we now consider old-fashioned explanations have it, right? And then in the 19th century, it gets brought in as a kind of periphery to a, a global economic boom. But what you're describing here is in the 16th century, the growth of a, you know, a capitalized, um, what you're calling a market society that's actually not only changing and vibrant, but very, you know, has huge impacts in terms of the kinds of social and political life that it makes possible. So could you just tell us, I mean, at a very basic level, what what are the changes that constitute a market society in the 16th century? Uh, I would qualify that by uh, sort of gradual development of a market society because it, it, it is not at the same pace all over the empire. Certain parts are much more uh, monetary, monetarized than others. But there is no question that we are uh, in a gradual, gradually more monetarized economy in 16th century than we were in the 15th century. Uh, and it, it sort of th- that development is there to be seen even in tax records, sort of like how the uh, empire collected its taxes. In 15th century, it was more service and produce-oriented, but those taxes were then gradually converted to cash. And that tells you just by itself that there is more uh, of a cash economy uh, growing. And that 
to me, underlines a lot of the developments that happen in 16th century. Uh, this, that is why I uh, prioritize talking about the feudal kingdom first when I give sort of a political history of the empire uh, to talk about the early conquests and the feudal relations, the significance of the kanun, which is uh, related to feudal customs, and how in 16th century we are in a different world. Now we have Sharia, we have monetary economy, uh, uh, we have commercial transactions, and clearly there are new actors. And what we, what, what I mean with the proto-democratization is uh, basically how these actors sort of moved from being economic and financial actors to becoming political actors. And um, I guess I guess you can think about this also in terms of, if we were to talk about this in Ottoman terms, how Ajnabi, the outsiders, became insiders. In the, in the early period, uh, uh, in the uh, sort of the late 15th and 16th century period, um, we have the slaves of the sultan ruling class, and that ruling class refers to uh, Muslims of peasant background or Muslims of city background uh, who do not belong to their class as outsiders, ajnabi. Um, and yet, in when we come to the 17th century, the ajnabi have become now Insiders. So maybe you could um, tell us a little bit more or give us an example of how these kind of changes in the the, the economy um, represented by monetization, you know, that we can see in the tax records, uh, produce new social actors who then become politically significant. I mean, can we think of maybe an example of someone who epitomizes that trajectory and how it works? The story that I tell in the book uh, about Baki Pasha relating uh, an moment in Edirne taking place at a tavern uh, where it Ahmed, uh, who is at that moment not yet uh, what he became. That story is a good anecdote to tell this because in that, in that story you see four or five so-called soldiers, uh, but they have nothing to do with really anything to do with what you would call military. They all have sort of uh, connections to trade, or endowments, and they are not sons necessarily of uh, other former Dev Shurme. One of them is the son of a baker, the other one is the son of a merchant. And these guys uh, sort of get into contracts, tax collection contracts, become good, experienced tax collectors, then eventually become financial administrators, eventually financial ministers and it was and at and times viziers uh, the ahmed at mikjazada ahmed pasha even holds uh, the deputy grand vizierate so examples of that type uh, give us in a good opportunity to observe how people who have experience with dealing with money in the marketplace end up coming to power in the uh, political court. In the court, which the positions that had been occupied by people who had been taken up in the Devshirme, right? And by, you know, sort of, as you call them, the slaves of the sultan. Yes. So this is a real kind of transition in the, the sort of who are the actors who are engaged in, you know, political power in the court. Yes. And I should also make it clear, though, the, the, the Devshirme origins viziers also engaged in um 
also engaged in commercial transactions. However, they did not grow from sort of the ranks of uh, commercial transactions into viziers, but rather they use their position as viziers uh, to invest. What we see with uh, likes of Baki Pasha are people who are from the sort of middle class, upper middle class, uh, socioeconomically, using their financial skills to enter the ruling class. That is what I call proto-democratization, and it has to be understood in a very uh, sort of limited fashion in the sense that it is not necessarily an expansion of the ruling class to everybody. It is an expansion of the ruling class to those who do have uh, economic skills, financial skills, and who are in a good position to use those skills. Right. It's a relative expansion. So it strikes me that this brings us then to um, another sort of piece of the the transition or the change of the 16th century that you get it at the in the book, which I think is a really important intervention, which is a kind of rereading of the story of the Janissaries, right? Um, and so I'm wondering how similar what's happening with the Janissary, the sort of military corps uh, in the 16th century is to what's happening with um, the administrative, you know, body of or, or the body of the court. I should take this uh, as a moment of uh, acknowledgement because uh, a lot of the things I said I did in the book are things that I built upon uh, other people's works. So it, it, this is a good moment to, of that acknowledgement because really uh, the the, the uh, historian who brought Janissaries to our attention uh, in this particular context was uh, the late uh, Donald Quartert, but much more so uh, Jamal Kafadar. Right. So I was very much influenced uh, by his very creative sort of look at the Janissaries uh, when I was a graduate student, uh, one of the uh, one of his seminar or some, a presentation that he made, I eventually I eventually uh, persuaded him to publish in, in a, a festival that I was co-editing, and it got published. But he he had actually uh, given that talk much earlier, and I I had found a, a sort of script of it, and that that reading that sort of had opened my eyes to uh, thinking about Janissaries, whether or not. Uh, uh, w- what I ended up saying would exactly be approved by Professor Kafadar. Uh, I definitely owe uh, my sort of interest in the Janissaries to his work. So what I suggest about the Janissaries is just like you have examples of, of the type, like Atmik uh, Jazad Ahmed Pasha, who make it all the way into the Grand Wizard, on a sort of lower middle and middle class level, you have the Janissaries. And some of them actually make higher. For instance, Baki Pasha at some point was a Janissary. Uh, But what we see in 16th century is uh, people who are involved in trade, crafts, find their way into the Janissary Corps by using connections, by basically uh, bribing uh, officers, and in a sense... They, the the outsiders, the the people who are called outsiders, infiltrate the insiders, uh, the, and it becomes sort of almost a rule. The numbers start increasing, and it's very clear that it is coming through this because uh, the numbers of the uh, the Ajemian, the Janissary cadets, 
they are not increasing at the same pace. Uh, so clearly the infiltration is coming not from the Dev Shurma, it's coming from non-Dev Shurma sources. And a lot of them uh, have to do uh, with trades because there we have anecdotes and various narrative histories talking about how uh, you know these guys are um, merchants, these guys are selling uh, vegetables, or these guys are craftsmen, etc. So that, th- this is the other side of the proto-democratization, which is uh, sort of lower and middle classes entering a part of the Ottoman sort of ruling class that was meant to uh, fight wars, protect the sultan. And so in a sense, uh, the society comes to own part of its state. So in that sense, uh, this is another level at which we can see the proto-democratization. I guess this brings me, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about the book as somebody who has had to, you know, talk to undergraduates about the kind of trajectory of Ottoman history, um, starting from, you know, the 15th century, going through the 19th century. What's been very difficult for me is to think of a narrative that is possible to give in place of uh, the sort of older standard narrative of decline. Right. And that this this is something that it seemed to me that part of what the, this book is about is to try to give us another way to tell the story of Ottoman history, um, another kind of narrative arc to replace, you know, the, the, the decline paradigm. So I'm wondering if you could just tell us, you know, maybe recap quickly what, you know, what what it, what the decline paradigm is for you and then how this book kind of can give us a new way uh, to talk about the 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 trajectory of Ottoman history um, and maybe a new way to teach it. That, that, that's a very good question, and actually, this, that is exactly, precisely what I had in mind while I was writing the book. I just wanted to s- suggest an alternative, a, a, a positive statement about the period, rather than a combination of negative statements. And here is what I mean. Uh, the, the decline paradigm that is that we might summarize as starting from the... Uh, aftermath of the reign of Suleiman the Magnificent, the Ottomans entered a period of uh, sort of continual failures in all kinds of areas, uh, starting from worse sultans to uh, military uh, weakness that eventually led to territorial losses and also economic uh, disengagement and uh, you name it. Uh, it, it, it and, and this paradigm... I mean, it is kind of now too repetitive to keep saying, yes, this, we didn't decline. But yes, it, 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 several scholars starting from 70s, actually going back or maybe even earlier, uh, pointed out uh, that there were things in this paradigm that were just wrong. And, and, and we reached, I think, in early 2000s, the point where uh, pretty much every Ottoman historian was very well convinced that this was not working. And uh, it actually, it, some some of us called it a myth. It became a myth. At that moment in time, my frustration as a graduate student was uh, sort of, yes, it wasn't declined, but what was it? How how 
could we come up with something that would actually be useful, that would replace the narrative of decline with something else? Yes, there was a lot of talk about transformation, and I appreciate that very much. I, I, I actually read uh, quite a bit of it and used quite a bit of it as well. But transformation was such a vague concept as to from which, from what to what. I wanted to put something a little bit more positive out there, something that could offer, uh, the way I put it in various talks in Turkey, uh, offer a frame of a house. And then I hoped that other scholars in the future or graduate students could maybe, if they like to, use this frame to put other things into that house, maybe build another floor, maybe have a balcony and put a living room arrangement. So develop it so that it could become something useful, a structure that could host more debate, more scholarship. That's exactly what I had in mind, the way I sort of Vision the so maybe you could tell us then, you know, um, and it's obviously we will we will include a bibliography and we encourage our listeners to read the book to get the full kind of sense of what this frame could look like. But we've we've discussed a few aspects of it here. Um, for example, this notion of proto-democratization, the sort of coming of a market society, um, transformations in in the nature of succession uh, and in the, the sort of cast of characters who are making um, policy decisions in the empire. I mean, so maybe you could just sort of sum up for us what what is the alternative frame, right? So if I'm going to give a lecture, uh, God forbid, to you know several hundred undergrads, and I need to I need to have a positive narrative uh, about the history of of the early modern Ottoman Empire. What does it look like? The way I would put it in in, in in that sense would be to sort of integrate it with other global developments. And I think the best way to integrate it with other de- global developments would be to emphasize how the outsiders became insiders. So the, how uh, people who were regarded as subjects found ways of entering the ruling class. Again, I should underline the fact that this does not mean anybody who wanted to enter the ruling class could enter. It was still very much class-based. It was your socioeconomic class and position that helped you uh, get into the ruling class. But from a time in which uh, the rulers picked uh, their servants from among the Christian subjects uh, in the Balkans and Caucasus as boys— and then educated them and created a slave class uh, to a moment where you have merchants and financial investors becoming rulers or um, people who are enterprising. Some of the, some of these people were enterprising in what we might call security industry, uh, like you know, sec bonds. The the sort of the people who were in the uh, provinces helping governors. Uh, in various political competitions. So these people coming to power, I think, uh, and joining the ruling class is one that should be emphasized most uh, because that is, I think, a narrative that shows there is mobility in uh, predominantly Muslim societies. Uh, There is a connection between the ruling class and the ruled in predominantly Muslim societies, and uh, there is a possibility of 
taking part in defining your future, having a say-so in your faith in predominantly Muslim societies. I, I think that is, to me, uh, the most significant part of the book. Uh, it is uh, narrating a story of potential empowerment of those who have who did not have a chance to take part in the political process. Right. And it seems to me that, you know, just to go back to what you were saying, that this this situates the Ottoman story in in a broader story, in a, in a you know, I don't want to, I don't know about global, but certainly the way we narrate European history um, of these several centuries, you know, perhaps starting from the 16th century is often couched in these very terms, right? That this is a kind of move from absolute kingship to a kind of more participatory um, society where there are more there are more possibilities, though not endless possibilities for social mobility. So it's, you know, part of what I understand from what you're saying is that, you know, this is to place the Ottoman case in that same kind of narrative in a way. Yes, uh, basically, that is exactly right. I, I was very much uh, sort of surprised to find out, you know, the, the 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 list of many depositions and regicides and everything it was a matter as sort of a it, these were examples of how decline was taking place in the Ottoman Empire but over in England or uh, France when such things happened they were sort of important moments in the development of limited monarchy uh, my my colleagues Mehmet Kalpakli and Walter Andrews had put this in writing uh, a few years before my book, uh, sort of asking this question. Uh, we are they were saying we are literary historians, so uh, we are not going to make any big comments on this. But non-literary historians should figure this out. Why is it decline over there and it is great over in the other place? And it was Sheriff Mardin also who had sort of uh, suggested. In, when you look at the development of limited monarchy and uh, sort of a more emancipatory discourse in Europe, if you look at it, it's very, very detailed. You might perceive it also as a series of rebellions and intrigues and this and that is also what you make of that, right? So why not make, uh, why not try to uh, see whether or not you can make something similar out of the many regicides and rebellions that take place in the Ottoman Empire? That was my uh, initial uh, sort of inspiration in the uh, uh, book, and I m- mentioned that in the introduction. I think I, I should acknowledge again Sheriff Mardin there. I should acknowledge uh, Mehmet Kalpakla and Walter Andrews, and of course, I need to acknowledge most and foremost, perhaps, uh, Rafat Abul Hajj, who, who was a visiting professor for a year in, at Princeton when I was a graduate student. And he had uh, uh, some formative impact on the way I thought about Ottoman history. So we will, we will include a, a bibliography for our listeners that will include all of these works in case you want to read more. Um, I just want to finish by asking, you know, I think that this rewriting of the decline thesis is really... Um, is, you know, a huge contribution both to the scholarship and to, as I said, those of us who have to teach it, right? Because actually to have some kind of positive narrative um, rather than just to tell our students, well, it wasn't decline, uh, and then that's a sort of unsatisfying narrative arc in a way is is really important. Um, I wanted to finish by asking you, you know, at the end of the day, of course, and you mentioned this in your conclusion, um, you know, we come to 1922, right? And that uh, I have the, the quote here. Um, you, you note 
and I'm quoting again from the book, seeds of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire must have been sown before 1922. Um, and so if the seeds are not, as we might have been led to believe, you know, in a much earlier era in the scholarship, in the kind of, you know, stagnation and despotism of the early modern Ottoman Empire, right, which the decline thesis might have had us believe, um, how then does your rewriting of, of early modern history change the kinds of stories that we need to tell about the 19th century? Um, well, I, I should preface by saying that I did not do as much research in 19th century history as I did in 16th and 17th centuries. So uh, whatever I say should be taken with a grain of salt. But uh, I think uh, there are two things I would probably like to say. One concerns what happened in the 19th century in terms of contributing to uh, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. And the other one actually concerns uh, with some of the dynamics of the Second Empire. So the first thing is something I already mentioned in the book. Uh, the, the 19th century developments go back to uh, a series of sultans who asp- and, and uh, grand viziers who aspire to more central power. And in the name of securing that central power, uh, more major, major bulwarks against uh, sort of absolutist intentions are taken down. So you get rid of the Janissaries in 1826, and then the ulama is disempowered gradually throughout the rest of the 19th century. So in in those terms, um, th- there is a, a the empowerment of autocratic tendencies. That, I think, is an important process that we should keep in mind when we are thinking about, uh, uh, and this is only part of the picture. Now we also have to add to this Ali Ayolo's work. I only briefly mentioned the role of the Ayan and how they are also part of the picture of the Second Ottoman Empire in the provinces, in the provincial administration, and how in the 19th century those Ayan are also getting displaced by uh, Mahmoud II and others later and how those the, the the displacement of the intermediary structures between society and state uh, produce a legitimacy crisis, uh, produce uh, a lot of frustration and dissatisfaction in the eyes of many. For instance, the loss of uh, uh, Greece to the empire had a lot to do with the fact that Tabadelani Ali Pasha was. Uh, uh, eliminated by the sultan. So the, the, such things taking place definitely contributed, I think, to the collapse of the empire. And another thing I mentioned in the book is how um, uh, Islam became a collective identity uh, in effect, and, and that changed the way in which Christians and uh, Jews uh, were regarded by some in the society. And so it, when you face 19th century uh, nationalism, and if you are still looking at Christians and Jews as, uh, you know, well, less than equal subjects, uh, it w- would not work. So there are a number of 19th century developments that actually bring about the collapse. So that you can look for a whole lot right there. But that is that it would be wrong, however, to put everything in the 19th century. And that is sort of, uh, the, the, because as my colleague, he, he 
he used to be right here in Davis and I was at Virginia, Alan Taylor, a uh, great American historian, uh, as he nicely puts it, 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 good history is about building the tension between teleology and contingency. We cannot push too much on the side of teleology, uh, write history as if it was all gonna, it was all clear that was gonna happen. Uh, uh, but on the other hand, we cannot also ignore long-term developments. So in that particular sense, I think uh, the Second Empire did have an impact in the longer term to uh, what became in the 19th century. And th those are things uh, that I am right now sort of thinking a lot about. And uh, it, I, I am more focused on uh, what the jurists and uh, what the educators of the empire were doing in terms of uh, sort of sciences, were they just becoming a little too legalistic? Uh, this is one set of questions. Another set of questions one could ask uh, could be, uh, would be related to military reform uh, because one of the major uh, sort of reasons that developed, the, that eventually brought about the collapse of the empire was the relative weakness of the Ottomans toward Russians, which actually uh, sort of... Uh, happened in 18th century, so the the, the those two issues, uh, the the military technology, military issues uh, in vis-a-vis -vis Russia, and uh, sort of uh, the the stance of the jurists in the madrasas in terms of uh, being very conservative about their sphere of it, that is knowledge, which I believe led to a certain degree of. Um, closing of imaginative borders uh, in, in minds. And that, those two things, military and uh, scientific, are things that have to be seen as issues, problematic issues within the Second Empire period that impacted the 19th century. Mm. So that's a, I mean, that's a really nice way to, to finish the episode, I think, which is that you're sort of reminding us of the the kind of overlapping temporalities that one has to take into account um, when dealing with something like, you know, the narrative arc of Ottoman history. Um, that it's not that, you know, uh, 1922 was simply a result of contingent decisions in the preceding 10 or 20 or 50 years, but it's also not that, you know, the, the decline thesis uh, and the, the notion that, you know, Ottoman governance and military might was on a teleological downswing after the reign of Suleiman, um, that neither of these are satisfying arguments, and that in a way, you know, what what good historical work does is to tease out the different um, the different moments and the different temporalities and the different kind of causal explanations. So we look forward to your uh, what I understand is upcoming work on you know these these characteristics of uh, the early modern period and how they may have impacted um, later developments. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you. So for our listeners who want to find out more, uh, I encourage you to pick up uh, a copy of Bucky's book, The Second Ottoman Empire, Political and Social Transformation in the Early Modern World, published by Cambridge University Press in 2010. We'll also post a bibliography for this episode on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where we invite you to leave comments and questions. You should also feel free to join us on Facebook, where we stay in touch with our community of over 20,000 listeners and post news about upcoming series and episodes. 
So that's all for this episode. Until next time, take care.